Welcome everyone, it's Zook again, uh, welcoming you to the newest episode of Stolen Droids Presents, episode number five. Uh, this time we had the great Yahtzee, Ben Yahtzee Croshaw, you might know him from Zero Punctuation, and from his book Mog World. He also gets to talk to us about his new one that's coming out, it's very exciting. Uh, this one is brought to us by our friends over at Open Book Audio, uh, who have exclu- you can exclusively get Mog World on audiobook, only from them. Very cool. Also brought to you by our friends GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. Uh, again, we use it here. It's always great when you can't actually meet people face-to-face. Well, actually, you can. You use this GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Uh, we want you to be able to try it. Go to their site, try GoToMeeting, free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click on the Try It Free button, and use the promo code PODCAST. Be sure to use the promo code PODCAST, because GoToMeeting, meeting is believing. And now our episode. Are we going? We are going. Okay. Hello and welcome to Stolen Droids Presents. This week we have a very special guest brought to a us by our friends, Open Book Audio. Uh, we have Yahtzee, Yahtzee Croshaw. Hello. Hello. Uh, now, Yahtzee, for those of us uh, who would be so ignorant as to not know your name immediately, can you give us a quick rundown, you know, who you are? Because you're kind of all over the place. Yeah, I, do a, I have my fingers in a lot of delicious pies. Um, I'm, if you know me from anything, you'll probably know me from uh, Zero Punctuation, which is a weekly video game review series that I do for The Escapist, escapistmagazine.com. But uh, I'm also a novelist, and I've just put out my second novel, Jam, and the audiobook version of my first novel, Mogworld. Now, um, you, your history kind of goes back even further than that, but we'll, we can touch on that later here. Mogworld, yes. which released, uh, was it a year ago? That was in uh, 2009, wasn't it? That was a while ago. It was, it was 2010 it was released, about two years ago now. Internet time is so much different than the rest of time. I remember you mm. mentioning it on Zero Punctuation that it was coming out, and it seemed very exciting. Yes, I, I always try to plug what I can on Zero Punctuation. <laughs> well, it is <laughs> your show. So. You should be able to. Yeah, it gets a lot of eyeballs on it pretty fast. G- uh, give us a quick rundown of what Mog World's about. Uh, Mog World is a comedic... A sci-fi stroke fantasy book about basically a NPC in a massive online video game gradually realizing his place in the world. And some might call that a spoiler, but I've uh, I've never thought of it like that. I would say that opens up a whole new book. Yes, quite. Kind of, uh, kind of almost a Doctor Moriarty thing from Star Trek. Oh, n- nerdy reference, yes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to, know, to admit that I know exactly what you're talking about there. <laughs> well, that is why I make the references. Uh, it is the target audience here. So, yes, indeed. I would imagine so how did that, you, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, how, how did you transition from you know, web celebrity to novelist? Well, I guess it wasn't so much a transition as just something I've been working on all my life that finally worked out because I also became a web celebrity. Because I've been inspired from very early age from reading stuff like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams and Mm -hmm. uh, in my teenage years, mostly Discworld books by Terry Pratchett. So I've always been like trying to write novels. That's always been the dream. And uh, when I started doing Zero Punctuation and I started getting approached to do all sorts of things, and this was uh, uh, the realization of something. Well, you, and you've been writing, actually, for quite a while. I would say that this is, that Mog World and your new book, Jam, is probably the first writing you've done that hasn't had a visual element to it as well, because you've done <laughs> yes. web comics, you've done videos, you've done games. Yeah, I don't like to talk about the web comics anymore. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> Works, of, yeah. I mean, um, who was it who said that every artist needs to get 10,000 bad works out of them before they can do the good ones? <laughs> I'm not sure I've even reached that number yet, but uh, I like to think what I'm getting there. Well, see, and I feel like the biggest dork now because I've actually read uh, every single strip of, of one particular series you had uh, mm. and loved them, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Zook, you love them more than Yahtzee does at this point. So <laughs> I, that, I guess that means I could be uh, considered their biggest fan. 
I'll put that badge right there on my Facebook page. All right. <laughs> so where did the, the idea kind of come about to... You, you seem to center a lot towards games, so I guess it would make sense that you would start writing a book about that, but most well, yes, of us, I mean, we look uh, at NBCs and we just kill them. Yeah, when I was first approached by um, Dark Horse Books, who published Mogworld, uh, they asked me if I wanted to write like a non-fiction book about games, because I've been right, doing zero punctuation for a while, and I said, uh, actually, I've got this draft for this game-related book, fiction book that I wrote, if you'd like to take a look at it, and it just went on from there. Because I guess, you know, book, video games is one of the subjects I feel I can actually talk from an expert's perspective on, because I've been playing them since a very early age. My very first console was the, the Magnavox Odyssey, if anyone remembers that. Mm-hmm. It was like the uh, n- notable only for being sued, for being too much like the Atari 2600. And couldn't you play 2600 games on it? Uh, I don't no, even I had, um, My parents got a thing when I was like like six or something. Mm-hmm. I just remember playing like a game that was a lot like Pac-Man, except that Pac-Man had little antennae, and this apparently made it legally differentiated. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, nice to know that yeah. an entire life inspired by old video games could actually amount to something. I'm well, always told yeah, that we're so going to shoot up high schools. Yes, I'm sure my uh, my parents who never disapproved of video games all while I was growing up are uh, kicking themselves now. <laughs> if only we'd given them more medical school games. <laughs> so your first novel uh, came out through uh, through Dark Horse Books. Uh, any yeah. uh, thought about doing a, a comic version of it through Dark Horse Comics? You know, I, did, I, did, I have thought along those lines because I've also read quite a few comics in my time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I need to find you know, uh, a, a good artist to work with. And I, sometimes I don't work so well with others. <laughs> I mean, having seen my webcomic, you probably know I'm not the best artist. Uh, you're actually far better way. than I am, so I, I thought it was <laughs> genius. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I don't know, maybe something for the future to think about. I mean, mm-hmm. since I'm, you know, working with Dark Horse on things, it's certainly a, a logical avenue to take. But, uh, it was the pr- it's the, the, they're like interested in expanding their prose book range, and I had got nothing to complain about there. Any publishing's good publishing. Yes, indeed. Well, so now, how did that set you up for your second book, Jam? Uh, Mogworld uh, sold really well. We were really impressed. We I think we're on the fourth printing. Last I heard. Impressive. Yeah. So. Um, Pretty much straight out of Mogworld, and we started talking about another book. I was asked if I wanted to do a sequel, and I really didn't, because in my critical career, I've felt that doing a sequel that wasn't planned from the start almost always backfires in the most hideous, hideous way. Sure, the the Bioshock Two effect. Yes, yes, yes. Taking up, I mean, I mean, I've pretty much specifically wrote Mog World so that there wouldn't really be any room for a sequel afterwards. I mean, it was very deliberately ended that way. Mm-hmm. But um, I did consider it for a second, uh, for literally a very brief second. But uh, really, I've just wanted to explore new ideas, and uh, Mog World did well enough that uh, Dark Horse were fine with that. They're, they're good people to work with. I've always been uh, very appreciative of that. Excellent. Well, can you give us a little bit uh, of the background behind Jam, then? Yes. Jam is a book that basically started as a sentence that came to me, which was, which is now the first sentence of the book. That is, I woke up one morning to find that the entire city had been covered in a three-foot layer of man-eating jam. Sounds like prototype. <laughs> Yes, but uh, but more jam. <laughs> and basically it turns into this sort of apocalyptic The Floor is Lava game where, every, where the main characters try to get across the city, perhaps like find out, like find, maintain or get contact with the outside world while trying to stay off the floor while running into these weird, um, the, the people who've been affected by the, by the jam forming weird settlements across the city. 
What was inspiring? <laughs> I don't know, I'm not even really sure how to how to phrase a question for that. It's like where does an idea like that come from? Oh, that's that's always a difficult question to ask, isn't it? Where do you get your ideas? Yes. Um I'm not sure. I think partly it's just because jam is just an inherently funny word <laughs> and an inherently funny concept. It, it's red and viscous and it smells faintly of strawberries and now it eats people. <laughs> so, great. Strawberry jam with bits of man in it. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, it's, I think it's a good, like, like, the hook is that it's just a, a funny concept. That should but, actually be uh, a brand name, Bits of Man. Yeah. Yeah, man jam. Uh, no. Is, does that sound bad? That sounds exceedingly bad. I imagine yeah. that could be taken uh, some different ways. Yeah. I would hate to see the Google search results from that. Well, I'm not a marketer. <laughs> you have done well for yourself marketing, though. I mean, everyone, everyone on the Internet now knows the word Yahtzee. It's yes. no longer a board game or whatever. It was never necessarily a board game. But it's no longer a game. It's, it's you. Yes, occasionally that haunts me when I think of Hasbro's legal department. But uh, I, I think they're fine. They haven't like done anything so far. I was actually just thinking. Uh, you're right. They haven't actually come after you, have they? That's amazing. No, and it is. And it is like a, a copyrighted name of theirs. You know, you probably are safe until they come out with Hasbro with uh, Yahtzee the movie, directed by Michael Bay or somewhat, and then they'll <laughs> come after you. Then you'll then you're screwed. Well, it's in, it's inevitable at this point, isn't it? Yes, it'll come out right after Sorry and uh, Mousetrap, and after after Battleship. Yeah. Well, no, Battleship and, uh, has been made, and yes, they're working on Candyland. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. I, hopefully, everyone will like, realize what a hideous idea that is before the Yahtzee movie. Well, we keep waiting well, think, for common sense. I think I'm fine because it's Yahtzee is what I call myself, not. A product that I'm trying to sell. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's, and I think legally you can call yourself whatever you like. If I tried to put out, you know, a dice-based game called Yahtzee, then there'd be problems. Well, there'd be some amazing hook, though. Some something that made it totally unique. Yours would be based around jam, or or <laughs> something or else. Just, or it'd just be the same as regular Yahtzee, but with yellow dice. <laughs> they might have an issue with that. Perhaps. We changed 15% of it. Your copyright no longer holds. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, people who have not caught on yet, Zero Punctuation, uh, Yahtzee, this person that we're speaking to, you produce a series of video game reviews and have now for quite some time. Yes, coming up to, would it be five years now? That's amazing. It's longer than any job I've ever had. <laughs> well, when you when you enjoy your work, you know. <laughs> now, the... You say you're not very good at marketing, but yet this entire thing from the Escapist magazine originally started by just a couple of YouTube videos you uploaded. Well, a couple of YouTube videos after seven or eight years of putting garbage online, and then finally something stuck, you know? Just like Harrison Ford, you're an overnight success after ten years of trying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously there was a quite a bit of luck involved, but uh, I'd like to, you know, don't totally uh, decry the the whole previous decade <laughs> so it's all working towards something but mm-hmm. but yes the zero punctuation started as a youtube video of a random idea i put online just to make a, a criticism review of a video game i'd played but uh, without actually having any sort of video making apparatus so i just put together a bunch of images with windows movie maker and uh, away it went. I actually took a, a college course in my undergraduate about uh, history of video game development and design. And when we got into the critique portion, my professor actually showed a couple of your videos as an example of uh, a very pure form of game critique without being review. So you're being mm. taught in classrooms as well. Yeah, I've heard that from a couple of people. It's uh, always quite intimidating to know how far it's gotten around. I've heard from uh, sergeants deployed in Afghanistan who are in the habit of showing my videos to de- to their to demoralize troops under their command to make them feel a bit better, <laughs> which, which was also a little scary. Well, especially because you don't say the nicest things about like the Call of Duty series about us <laughs> us gun happy Americans. 
Uh, yes. I mean, he probably like uh, senses those ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when you write the when you write for that when you write for Mock World when you write in general, how much of yourself do you put into these works? I mean, how much of what we see online is actually you? How much of it is just a separate persona that you've you've created? Well, I guess it. This sounds really um, pretentious, but I guess it depends on the definition of me. You know. Because is the me I project myself in person the same me who writes these things? Pretentious, I mean, no. Maybe a little is, existential the, there. I mean, which one is the true me? I mean, yeah, because in conversation, I, I think I'm a fairly boring person, as you're no doubt finding out throughout the course of this podcast. I'm actually quite enjoying it. I was worried that you would speak faster, which I know is a stupid <laughs> thing to assume. But, oh, well, uh, I need to... I need a script to, to speak that fast <laughs> and come up with it like that. People actually have said that before about you, I've heard. I remember uh, when you had just started Zero Punctuation, you were in your first uh, season, if they have seasons, uh, and you were you were sick. And immediately, yes. immediately the comments were just filled up with, this isn't actually him, this is some other guy they hired. Yeah, it's, it's funny how people think that, how people think that works. It's secretly the voice of Winnie the Pooh doing your speeches for us. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. The very first video I did for The Escapist after doing the few for YouTube, I got, went down with a throat infection that very week. And which has happened now and then. I think it happened on the Assassin's Creed 2 review as well, but yeah, inevitably. There a, yeah, there's another yeah. one. I think your, your headset was lost or broken, and then immediately the haters all come out. It's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Especially if someone can come out as a hater against someone who uh, almost, by definition, hates everything he reviews. Well, yes. That's, uh, that's always walking the line, isn't it? <laughs> For bringing the haters out. Well, now, I mean, so, particularly when you do a, like a Nintendo game. They just come out in force. When you... Um, yeah, go fig on that. I love it when you always bring up Nintendo and how it's no longer the... Uh, it no longer needs your protecting, as it were. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's made a bit of money. I'm sure it can look after itself. <laughs> you, like, you hear these stories about people uh, just sending, flooding angry emails to review sites because they like, gave the latest Zelda 8 out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10. Well, now, now that you've kind of created something, now that Mog World and Jam are out into the world, uh, and I'm... And I'm probably going out on a limb here and assuming that they're not going to be your only two creations are you ever kind of worried about some of that karma coming back on you with people reviewing <laughs> your works oh it, it, it always it already happens i mean pretty inevitably every time i put something out there's a video and i think there's a couple of right reviews of mog world on youtube that try to imitate my style i guess you know you gotta try to learn to take it as well as you dish it out because in the years I've been doing criticism, you f I find that criticism is actually a really a positive thing. It's if someone criticizes you, they're doing you a favor. At least that's what I that's what I tell myself. Because I've spoken to a lot of developers, even developers of games that I've I've pissed on. Can I say piss? You can say pissed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they've almost universally they've been really like good about it. Because uh, when you bring up the faults of a game, especially in the AAA industry, it's the developers who are usually the first people who know those faults. And it's just bringing something out into the open that uh, maybe they've been trying to bring across to their colleagues or their publishers that they haven't had been able to, haven't been given the time to fix. So how does that feel for you? You're someone who, who grew up playing video games going way back to the Odyssey. So now you put your reviews out, and then you hear directly back from the people who make the games. So, I mean, what, what's that like for you as someone who started out as a fan and has now moved up to the, the point where you are now? It was very... It made me pretty starstruck early on. It still does when I meet like big developers. The first two videos on YouTube, both of them, I got contacted by one of the developers. I got contacted by Peter Molyneux, and I did a review of Fable. And that was one of the first signs I realized that things were just going crazy. You reference him a lot, too. Big floating head with glowing eyes. Yeah, I, I like the guy. I think he's, I think he's a, a, a positive influence. I, just, I, think he's, I think he's not quite at the George Lucas point, but he, 
he needs to have people pulling him back a bit before he gets to the George Lucas point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he's got the great big ideas and the, the great big statements, but kind of yeah, needs somebody a, to rein him in. And... He's a big idea rather than small details guy. He needs someone right. who knows how to say no to him. But yes, I mean, uh, I, I've always considered myself closer to developers than other games journalists. I, most of my friends in Brisbane are game developers, and uh, I've I have ambitions to be a game developer myself at some point. Well, and and you you touched on it very briefly there, where if you're saying something and it's a legitimate gripe, I don't think I've ever heard a review, and I should say it's a critique because you technically don't review. Um, yeah, there's yeah there's a big debate over the difference between review and criticism. Yeah, but but. Whatever you call it, the critique review, the the review, <laughs> another bad sounding Google search. Um, yeah, I'll that one. <laughs> but you know, if you bring up a legitimate complaint, a legitimate problem that maybe the developers knew about but couldn't get management to listen to, mm. you know, hey, look, this combat system, it's it's crap. It's a crap sandwich. We can't release it like this. Oh, it's it's good. It's done. Four weeks later, yeah, you see Yahtzee, he just completely tore us a new one. I told you. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I haven't spoken to many publishers as I have spoken to developers. I imagine they probably wouldn't be as nice about it. I don't think publishers are nice about anything. Nah. Game Except publishers getting more money. Yes, yes. <laughs> Book publishers very different, right? Oh yes. Lovely guys. Actually, how do the uh, how do the book publishing people compare to the game publishers? Well, yeah, I was about, right about to ask that. How 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 are the worlds different, or how are they the same? I guess um, it's hard to say because, like I said, I haven't really interacted with game publishers that much. But um, the book, pub- book publishers I've spoken to have all been very uh, nice people. I think some people... I was speaking to uh, Bob Chipman at the Escapist Expo, who does the Movie Bob videos on Escapist. Mm-hmm. And he always said it astounds him how publishers work in the games industry because they would not get away with what they do in any other creative industry. Like, if um, if a film studio tried to, like, blacklist a film critic just for giving a negative review of a film, that publisher will be raked over the coals. They'd never hear the end of it. Game publishers are more like crime families, from what I understand. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. It's probably because we're still a fairly young industry. It's like Prohibition in the 30s. The EA cartel. Yes. Like they can actually do a thing where they refuse review copies to you from now on, and there's no real. I guess there's still like a lack of respect, both from outside the industry and within, to like the culture surrounding video games, especially criticism. That's why, like, uh, like the, the the main video game critics seem to be on the internet rather than anywhere else, usually on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Well, now and. I know we seem to be really centering on, on video games, and I apologize for that, but it doesn't... <laughs> no, that, that's fine. It's, it's, a, it's a topic I, I know a lot about. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but, but this day and age, where we are right now, where anyone can hop on YouTube and start a sensation or a, a viral video or make news, everyone has a voice, I should say. Mm. Does a publisher blacklisting a reviewer do them more harm, or does it help keep it silent? Because... Inevitably, if if someone were to, if XYZ Company were to block you, say, Yahtzee, we don't want to give you our game, you're just too mean to people and we don't want to cry. And if you were to then turn around and say, I was going to review this game, but, you know, these guys did not, did told me off. Mm. They would get a lot of backlash, I would imagine. Where do you think more power rel- lies now in this day and age, with the publisher or with the reviewer? I think, yeah, there's definitely been a, a shift in that area. The thing is, though, um, there's still the people who like listen to the video game critic is still sort of in a minority to the main people who buy video games. I would think. So I'm not sure. I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want to test. Like, start flexing my muscles in that sort of area. Oh, come on! Because, like, you know, if if people really listen to me, you know, modern warfare would wouldn't sell at all, and it does. It demonstrably does. Well, so as you, you yourself to... said, if you like it, you like it, no matter what well, anyone else yeah. says. Well, yeah. And there are but some games like that, do, that. But if you like Modern Warfare, you know, you know, you, you like it, fair power to you. I just don't really want to 
get to know you as a person. <laughs> this is where I suddenly burn my, my Call of Duty <laughs> franchise. Well, you know, I, I, you know oh, I'm sorry. Not always, but I, I like I like the first Modern Warfare. Mm-hmm. It just gets a bit after that. Yes. I, I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't defend it after that point. I've played all three, but only because the first one got me hooked, and then I probably I know, sold them. Yeah. And that was well, that was again to introduce this concept of like uh, of uh, having a really shocking mo- story moment, yeah. like when the nu- when the nuke falls, and that did so well. And then in the next games, you can almost see the thought processes that went through the publisher's mind. One shocking death of the protagonist. Yeah. Several shocking deaths of the protagonists. Doing I, shock. I, I won't lie, that helicopter scene, I thought I had screwed it up somehow. I yeah. reloaded that scene so many times thinking that if I can just make it to a health pack, suddenly I'll be able to walk again. <laughs> <laughs> I get a health pack yeah. and a gun, I can kill this entire city. I'm good. Yes. And we'll I deal with, you know, We'll deal with the radiation as, as it comes to it. Well, that's a different health pack. Yeah. I'll find the radiation <laughs> suit. Yeah, that, that was one of those rare moments in games that you really had an emotional response to. That's, then, I think that's what, that's what makes it all worth it. I mean, people ask me uh, why I still review games when I seem to dislike so many of them. It's, it's those moments. Mm-hmm. Those moments when you just sit back and go, I was really impressed by that. That was one of those moments. More recently, I guess, Spec Ops The Line did that as well for me. Mm-hmm. I just went, holy sh- like they've just turned that around on me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd have to say, um, call it. You're right. Modern Warfare One did have a lot of those moments, but probably the first one was probably when uh, at, during the opening cutscene I get to witness an execution from the oh, first yes. person point of view. Yes, uh, that, that that was new. The for moment me. that pretty much uh, defined the series from that point on: the protagonist getting shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd you think we would have we would have noticed. We would have caught a hit yeah. there. Yeah. Well, where do you see the gaming industry coming going forward? Because we have a lot of these huge AAA titles. Some of them yeah. make it. Some of them get bogged down in development. But you also see the rise of the indie gamer now. And in fact, you've encouraged this. You've actually mm. held contests for indie gamers. Yes, we did a, a contest at with uh, at the Escapist to put together a really quick game based on zero punctuation. And yeah, mixed results. Yeah, with mixed results, I would think you know you'd probably want a better subject matter for a video game because my daily life is just like staring at a wall mainly. There's (laughs) not there's not much potential in that. (laughs) Quick, we need a game. It needs to have a yellow background with black silhouettes. Yeah, and um, Um, yeah, go from there. (laughs) Yeah, one guy one guy made a game where. The idea was you had to shout into your microphone as much as you can within a five-minute period. And I found I got the best score just by putting it next to a really noisy piece of household equipment. Just hand the microphone to my daughters and rack up the points. Yeah, I mean, fair, I mean, I mean, fair play for trying, I suppose. <laughs> but as for where the games industry is going, I think it's still at this sort of weird point sort of weird on a weird verge that comes from console wars sort of coming to an end because for the last 30 years there's the industry has been driven by console war which has been uh, competing consoles with competing technology and we've kind of reached the point where technology can't reasonably get much better i mean it could you could have you could still go as far as photorealistic models but it's at the point that it's not uh, uh, approachable for third-party developers to work with. Mm-hmm. People, not everyone has the resources to develop in massive, uh, massive high-definition polygons and models and stuff. Right. We, but we, this, but this whole phase has led to a sort of renaissance almost in game development, where we've gone back to the lessons of of the indie times of, and of the older times, and uh, made a, a lot of uh, new 2D ideas and uh, released them on things like Steam and the Xbox Live Arcade and uh, that and uh, handheld and phone devices and that really does seem to be where all the actual innovations going on while the AAA games just waddle around in these bloated, big money 
things that need to tick off a bunch of items on the marketing department's checklist and mm-hmm. lose something creatively for it. Well, and it seems like the games industry is really starting to mirror uh, the film industry in that regard. You know, yeah, I think it always has been. Just kind of entertainment in general, you believe? Yeah. I mean, it's like you can't really judge the entire film industry by Die Hard 4. And you can't judge the whole games industry by the ones everyone knows, like just the ones that are shooting guys mm-hmm. in, in the modern warfare setting. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I remember uh, Squishy here actually showed me his favorite game ever, which almost became mine, which is just Bomberman. And it's just an mm. indie title on Xbox Live. And it's, it's just a, it's a 2D side-scroller, and all you do is explode. Oh, you're yeah. thinking Explosion Man. Oh, Explosion Man, I'm sorry. Yes, not yeah, Bomberman. Yeah, Bomberman is the much older one. Much That's, older. Also 2D, yeah. also explode, but... Although, they, didn't they do a, a hardcore, gritty reboot of Bomberman a couple years It was years darker. Ago? Yeah, it was darker. Yeah. And appropriately was, enough, it bombed, so we don't talk about <laughs> it anymore. <laughs> well, now... I mean, you mentioned the, the variety of, of ways you can play. I mean, I'm looking around my living room at the hundreds of dollars that I have in big-time video game equipment, and... I think most weeks I play games on my phone more than anything. Mm. You know, got a stack of AAA games that I've been meaning to get to, but you know, the uh, Angry Birds or uh, you know, Cut the Rope are games that really draw yeah, me in. I've got old stars on every level in Cut the Ropes. So eat that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I can't. I where's the wa- where's my water is the one that I'm just eagerly anticipating new levels for every time a, a new pack comes out. Yeah, I've gone through that one as well. Like, those games on my iPhone are the ones I play when I actually am just relaxing or just trying to pass the time, Mm -hmm. because you can just dig it out and play it for a bit. Yeah. Because it seems like if you want to play, like, a a AAA game these days on a console, you've got to set aside time for it. You've got to turn on all your electronic devices, sit through all the opening screens, sit through all the menus. It requires dedication. Yeah, before yeah. you're actually in there and immersing yourself. It's like, it's almost like, it, it's not quick escapism anymore. It's almost like having to, you know, dress up for the opera. Um, it's even worse in my home where I actually have to set aside uh, dedicated time. Don't, yeah, exactly. don't bother daddy on this day. This is game time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't really have time to play anything on consoles other than what I'm reviewing these days, which I just do for the job. Have you found this kind of killed your love of it, or? Well, like I said, you know, the the moments when you're, the rare moments when something really, really impresses you, make it all worth it, you know. <laughs> and if you aren't having fun uh, playing a game, then I think that's more the game's fault. No, there's your review right there. Yeah, this exactly. game was not fun. Well, that's that's where that's always my starting point. If if you. Once I've played a game, just try to get some broad analysis of whether or not I was having fun or not, which is usually measured by uh, at what point I started looking at my watch and thinking, "Have I played enough for today? Can I go and uh, can I go and have my dinner?" <laughs> but, and but once you realise that you weren't having fun, that's when you have to go back and try to figure out why, like what you got stuck on, where it didn't flow, and and uh, why it just didn't engage. And the rare gems come around that you forget to eat dinner because you're yeah, exactly. playing the game. All of a sudden, I mean, you that's, notice. That's what I got with the first Modern Warfare game. I just mm. uh, forgot forgot to eat. That's the good. That's always the sign, isn't it? Now, before we switch back in, into uh, into book mode here, uh, speaking of fun, is there any ever been any title where you're playing it and for absolutely no reason you are having fun? Like it could be a crap game. It could have the dumbest dialogue, but it's just fun. It has that unquantifiable quality to it that you just loved. Your, your favorite of all time, as it were. I think the one I keep coming back to in terms of those sorts of games is the the video game tie-in for Spider-Man 2. Did you play that mm-hmm. one? Just the yeah. open sandbox one, right? Yeah, yeah. But there have been later Spider-Man games that were open sandbox, but not as fun as this one. Because in this one you had a sort of like manual control over the webs... And where you and in what directions you swung, and when you got a good like uh, combo going of just swinging and going from web to web around the buildings, I could I could uh, I could be bothered about the actual missions mm-hmm. because they were all the same and all incredibly boring, and they just make Toby Maguire repeat the same five incredibly hilarious dialogue lines a million times. But if just 
just swinging around the city. I could do that for hours. Yeah, I remember having the same experience with that one. I, I think I maybe did three missions, but would just pop the game in for hours and just dink around New York. It was fun. Squishy actually yeah. tried to get me to play it uh, in his living room. I think I jumped off of every building in New York. Well, there was, was a certain catharsis, yeah. catharsis to that, of climbing to the top of the Empire State Building and jumping off. And, e- and even before, this was before like achievements were in games, but uh, mm-hmm. there was like an in-game menu that kept track of statistics. And one of the statistics was the furthest distance you fell before, like, uh, throwing out a web and escaping the fall damage. Mm-hmm. So I used to, like, leap off from the very, very top of the Empire State Building and swing at the very, very last moment before hitting the ground and try to beat my, my score in that regard. Playing chicken with the ground. Yes, emergent <laughs> gameplay. That's what everyone should, should trying to, uh, sort for. Trying to figure out how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Exactly. Hitchhiker's reference. Yep. That's what got my wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <Another story. laughs> now, so you've, you've already mentioned, you know, back to the books, you've kind of mentioned that you like to avoid uh, sequels, trilogies. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, just if People have... I've been asked by my publisher if I'd be interested in writing a trilogy. And, and well, A, I'm not sure... I could come up with an idea I would remain interested in for that long. And B, I'm kind of iffy about putting out a book that you have to have read previous books to get the full experience from. That that doesn't mean anything unless you've read the previous ones. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it always frustrated me growing up when I go into the bookstore and in the fantasy section that there'd be book three, book seven, and book nine of the of the like you know the magic scroll saga of whatever it is and it just was and i have a similar problem with ongoing comic book series it's just impossible to find a point you can jump in right mm-hmm. that was a problem i, I had with the uh was the wheel of time series i think i had a girlfriend yeah. in high school who loved those and i'd want to jump in but they were a thousand pages each and trying yeah. to go back and read four of them or however many around at the time was just it was just too much work yeah exactly I think, I mean, if you if I did a trilogy, I'd want to do like a self-contained story in each installment because that's mm-hmm. that's that's how it would work. I mean, if you look at the the original Star Wars trilogy, there's like there's a contained story in each installment, especially in the first one. They, mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker becomes the pilot and blows up the Death Star, and then Darth Vader goes spinning off as the sequel hook. But uh, it works by itself, and everyone gets a medal, except Chewbacca. Except Chewie. Yes. Yeah, he he got a heroic death though, much later. Yeah. Well, that was in the books. That doesn't count. Yeah, they, oh, they well, killed him off in one of the head. books about ten or fifteen years ago, because the books were becoming very predictable, and so they realized they had to do something shocking, and so they killed Chewie. Uh, what 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 a lazy approach. Well, they they didn't just kill Chewie. They bought a fracking moon down on him. Well, I guess that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually still out there, Chuck Norris in it across the galaxy. Um, yeah. Well, if so, if you're not going to, if you try and avoid those, do you find yourself looking to the future, going, "I'm going to have to figure out a new idea every time I need to write a book"? I mean, isn't I, that a little daunting, or or is it exciting? That's, I don't think that's the problem as much as trying to decide which idea to write next, because I I really don't have. Uh, enough of a shortage of ideas that I have to try and, like, you know, resort to sequels and remakes and stuff. There's a lot of things I'd like to be doing. Like I said, uh, I'd like to go into game development, and I've got a ton of ideas in that area as well. And I still work on, like, hobby projects in my spare time in stuff like Game Maker Studio. So there's a, there's a few book ideas I'd like to do. There's something I'd like to... I'd like to do something a bit more hard sci-fi, but I've also got something I want to do that's a bit more Lovecraftian. It's exciting. I guess, you know, maybe like 40 years from now, I'll, I'll uh, start getting desperate. But for now, I think I'm fine. <laughs> so if anyone asks you for a five-year plan, you're fine. If anyone asks you for a 50-year plan, you might have to start floundering a bit. Yeah, well, who makes a 50-year plan? Weirdos. Make, let, let life surprise you. I've known a few. They are odd. <laughs> I'd say you should actually try and combine those ideas. I know it's taking up two of your ideas with one book, but a hardcore sci-fi, Lovecraftian-themed book. It'd be very steampunk. Well, 
Actually, I've been mess, messing around with working the Lovecraftian thing into a sort of uh, political comedy thing. How, How would that be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it was because um, recently I got really into uh, a BBC series called The Thick of It, if you know of that one. Yeah. They made a, you know of it? Probably the most foul-mouthed series. It, it's a series that made Deadwood look like Dora the Explorer for language. Yeah, it that's was, what I love about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been, um, that's been like a big inspiration lately. It's been like, really been informing my zero punctuation writing as well, I think. And um, I just have this idea of um, sort of a political environment in which Lovecraftian beings have come into existence. They come into our dimension and they're, and they're like uh, seeking refuge. And this whole sort of like, like a new arm of political correctness builds up around them and uh, the government departments are trying to deal with it. You have uh, Cthulhu running for Congress. Something, something like that, yeah. Well, if Cthulhu just showed up and everyone was just kind of fine with him being there, how would you deal with Cthulhu bashers? And would the people prefer the government to take a pro-Cthulhu or an anti-Cthulhu stance? I'm pretty sure that uh, they would just let the Cthulhu bashers go and Say, tell him, you know, you're okay to destroy their minds. You know, don't go out, <laughs> uh, don't go after the main public. But if it's self-defense, destroy yeah. them. Soul possession is fine only under consenting partnership arrangement. Exactly. Look, they're just two entities doing what they'll do. He wanted to be possessed. The other guy, he was fine possessing him. It's okay. Yeah, it's just a business relationship, if not, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we we would have the whole uh, the whole tea party thing here in the U.S. trying to break that up. Mm. I don't see them doing real well with elder gods here <laughs> in the U.S. Well, you know they're all you know the tea party tends to be older people, doesn't it? <laughs> elder gods for an older people. There's the slogan. Right oh, there. I like it. We need to make a banner for that. <laughs> uh, it's just because we've now willed it into being somewhere on the internet that that sticker now exists. Like an entire <laughs> web ring has just sprung into existence for it. Well, Cthulhu always sells well on the internet, doesn't he? He does. It's amazing how popular he is. Hmm. And I'll bet you most of the people he's popular with have never actually read Lovecraft. I've, I've, I have read all the Lovecraft. He's, he's fun. He's fun to read. I like him. That's partly why I wanted to do a Lovecraftian thing. He's amazingly racist, though, if you've ever read him. Well, you know, a lot of the authors of the day were. Even, like, like more so even for them. I mean, I've read um, Ryder Haggard, who wrote King Solomon's Mines. Really progressive. I mean, I'm, this was written in the Victorian age, and on the first page he complains about how he doesn't like the word nigger. And which, which is, you know, for the time, that's like, you know... As left as you can get. Yeah. But but H.P. Lovecraft, if you ever read Reanimator, there's a sequence in that where they reanimate uh, a, a Negro boxer. And the way he describes it, it's just off the pale. Like, practically saying that his knuckles are dragging on the floor. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. At that point, I think those old classics almost become comedies. Where you just try not yeah. to laugh at the uh, the writing itself. Yeah, so you, like you watch some of the old Disney cartoons. And if you ever read, like, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, that whole thing is an analogy for race mixing, like, intentionally. Wow. Okay, so we have hard sci-fi, we have Lovecraftian. You're telling us you have all these ideas constantly. Have you ever, like, is there one great opus, Yahtzee's opus, that you're just looking forward to, that you've always, like, all your life has been gearing up for this one work, this one masterpiece? Well, I'm not sure I'd want to think of it that way, because once you do that, you've immediately peaked, haven't you? That's true. I guess if I had the money and the resources, I'd like to make a steampunk space fighter game. Well, now there's uh, two genres you don't usually see cross each yes. other. Sort of like an open-ended space game like Elite, but in a sort of steampunk universe. Mm-hmm. So that. You know, so that it's it's more like based around Victorian perceptions of what space was like rather than realistic perceptions of what oh, space is like. Oh, so I you're see. not so you're not travelling through space for like two hours to get to one place. You're you're more or less being shot from a cannon towards the moon. Like if Jules yeah. Verne wrote Battlestar Galactica. 
Or go to any other uh, planet in the solar system and find, you know, whatever they were populated with in Victorian fiction, like, like the Martians on, uh, on War of the Worlds. I think that would be fun. That could be fun. That would be fun. It would definitely, uh, that, that would almost create its own new subgenre, I would imagine. Well, steampunk's a genre. Yeah. And space games are a genre. But there haven't been so many space games lately. That's what disappoints me. Well, it's true, actually. I've noticed, uh, and it's not just games. Space seems to be very uh, passe now to everyone. You don't see TV shows or movies. I don't see how space could ever be passe. Well, I mean, it's still the one thing we haven't explored properly. Well, it's like just recently we launched a, a two-ton vehicle onto the face of another planet. Yes, I heard about that. That yeah. was a curiosity, right? Yeah, yeah. It made, it made some small headlines. And people are more concerned about how much it cost. Bah. Bah. It's like, I'm sorry, people, we just launched this thing to another planet. Funny how, like, both sides of that argument would use the phrase, uh, could we please have some perspective? Because the <laughs> space people will be saying, could we please have some perspective? This is something we need to do at some point. And everyone else is saying, well, what about all the people who need money and food and stuff? I think the correct way to phrase that argument is, please have my perspective. Yes, yes. Please have the correct perspective. <laughs> All right. So, moving on from, from games here, you guys, you have often said that you wanted to keep making other video games as Hello? Sorry. I, I have some technical difficulties happening here on my end. Oh, yes? But, uh, so, going on into other games that you would want to make yourself. You ever, you said that you don't work well with others. Did you ever want to try and make a bigger one with a, like a development studio? Yes. I mean, I've been like talking to a couple of, uh, small teams locally about things along those lines. The thing is, I'm no good at managing people. I'm no good at taking a, a producer role or an administrator role. And if I, and that's sort of like with small scale development you sort of have to do that if you want to work with other people if you want to have any sort of creative input on what you're doing mm -hmm. I always think if I was in the position where I could just they just brought me on as uh, to, to write a story for a game and to like consult on the design because the story like uh, feeds design then that would be ideal if someone else was doing all the actual difficult business stuff <laughs> and I could just be creative that would be the sort of position I'd want to be in. If a AAA studio could hire you as their muse, as it were, while they <laughs> do the work, that's kind of your ideal position then in the gaming industry? Yes. Inspire with one hand and smack people around the back of the head with the other. <laughs> do you ever see any of your works that you work on outside of games being made into? Could you ever see uh, Jam or Mog World being, even though they're kind of inspired by video games, could you see them closing the loop and making it back into that medium? I think uh, a Mogworld video game would sort of lose something from Mogworld being a sort of, you know, uh, deconstruction of video games. So it would, it would be this weird sort of paradox almost. But I, I have, I've actually thought that Jam might make an interesting one. You'd make it sort of a sandbox open world thing where you're out in the, in the city of Jam. You have to go across the rooftops, loot. Find uh, improvised weaponry. Decide which faction to work for. It actually sounds—it actually sounds. Uh, describing it like that, it almost sounds like one of those old LucasArts games, like uh, Day of the Tentacle, Grim Fandango style gameplay. Yeah, play. maybe, but with less of the, uh, you know, really linear adventure game style. And a lot more jam, right? Yeah, I think there's there's sort of like a like an athletic part of it. You could parkour your way across the roofs. To avoid the jam. It would be perfect. We we should make a, a connect game. Yeah, and combat would be just be based around knocking people into the jam rather than shooting them. <laughs> Human shield, the game. Human jam shield. <laughs> so uh, a couple weeks ago we had the release of the audiobook version of Mongrel. Yes. And uh, one of us, what was that process like for you, sitting down and actually doing the recording for it? Well, you have to take a bit of a bit of the time, bit of the time, because uh, people asked me if I was going to do it at full speed, zero punctuation style, and I was like, no, that would be mental. So you could like finish <laughs> the book in twenty minutes. 
Well, I think people like, you know, the, what they want from a five-minute internet video is not the same thing they want from a 13-hour audio book, you know. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to relax, put it on while they're, you know, sitting in the living room having a glass of wine of a slow Sunday afternoon or, or for a really long drive. And oh, yeah. um, so, so having to unlearn how to talk fast was actually a bit of a difficulty at the start of doing the mm-hmm. audio book. Because I did a, like an initial like tester for the first 10 minutes or so that I sent to a uh, publisher, Open Book Audio, to get their the opinion of it. And they said, you ratchet that back by about 50% speed-wise. And I hadn't even realized I was doing it fast because uh, it's just second nature now. Was it but, uh, so, was so hard I had to, to I had to slow down to a pace that I thought felt really slow, but uh, apparently it was perfect at that point. Was it hard for you doing the the different voices? Was it hard maybe just on your voice itself to uh, do the very that gravelly was, voices? That was a worry that there's a lot of there's quite a few different characters in Mog World, and I wanted to give them all sort of a unique voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, actually going through it, I actually expanded my voice repertoire a little bit. Because there's, previously there's like a couple of accents I do all right. Like I do a terribly, I do, I do a terrible Irish accent. And the secret of the Irish accent is just to speak really quickly so no one can tell what bollocks he's saying. Throw <laughs> <laughs> up there with the pikey accent. Oh, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. This would come across in like zero punctuation now and then. I think it was Far Cry 2 where I showed off my incredibly uh, terrible scientific accent china <laughs> well, but because i had to like make every voice different in in mog world i had to like actually expanded my range a bit there's a scene in that set in like a peasant village where i think i gave every single person in the village a different region of the united kingdom like uh one guy standing next to them was irish and the other guy standing next to them was welsh See, was yeah. it, was we American, we, we Americans lose so much in that, I would imagine, because <laughs> you all sound alike to us. That's a lie, well, I, but... I, never, I can never tell the difference between an American accent and a Canadian accent, I'm sorry to say. Well, we can get Graham on from, uh, <laughs> from, the, uh, from Loading Ready Run, and he'll, uh, he, he'll tell us. He just sounds American to me, just even side by side. Oh, we won't tell him that. Yeah. Yeah, I think but the I Canadian accent's just a lot more polite. A couple of voices like that I learned to do doing Mod World I found came uh, pretty pretty easily. Like um, for the character Slippery John, I ended up going with a Liverpudlian accent, which I picked up from watching Red Dwarf, which is a prominent Liverpudlian character. And you do that amazingly but, well, actually. Well, I, it's because I watched Red Dwarf my entire childhood growing up. I used to recite bits of it back to myself, so when I was, like tried to do a Liverpudlian accent, it just came out like I've been doing it my whole life. Just channel Dave Lister, and you're okay. Exactly. exactly. Well, and now, you know, uh, spa- uh, Red Dwarf X is coming out now, so that's... Yeah, well, it's something. Like, the first couple of episodes have been shown, and people have been telling me, you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Things are always starting like, off well when they go there. Yeah, well, it's not glowing praise, is it? Yeah. Now, before you say anything, it, remember it could have been worse. Well, yeah, it could have been Series 8. <laughs> so now, I've always wanted to ask an author this, an author who's done their own audiobook. One, would you do it again? And, and two, kind of, was it harder than you thought it would be in terms of, because it's, it's your work. Mm. You know, you've, you've often heard, I've heard audiobooks done by, you know, these grand speakers who inject their own emotion and their own kind of their own viewpoint into the story that they are narrating whereas this was your own creation was it more difficult than you thought it'd be or I'd say it was um, I would say it might have been easier for me just because I wrote it Uh, because obviously uh, in my day job I write for vocals most of the time and when I'm writing I'm always sort of like sounding it out in my head I've got my own like, idea of how how the sentences are paced and how comically timed and all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I think it um, came pretty naturally to me. And I would do it again. I think I would do it for Jam, although I'm 
I'm probably going to procrastinate on it for a while. By that, he means both the book and as payment. So, <laughs> for the things well, I wouldn't do for Jam. Jam's, Jam's going to be harder, actually, because the advantage of Mog World is that it was set in a fantasy world. So it was silly, and you could come up with whatever stupid regional accent you wanted for all the characters, and it didn't have to make sense. But uh, Jam's set in the real world. It's set mostly in Australia. And even though I've lived in Australia for nearly 10 years, I still have trouble with the accents. Yeah, my brother actually uh, lived there for a number of years. He said the same thing. You are correct, I, 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 though. I mean, the more we say the word jam, the more funny it is. <laughs> if you ever, like, listen to Eddie Izzard, mm-hmm. that's one of his favorite, like, random words to use. Because he, deli- he delivers it so well. There's not jam. much, yeah, there's not much uh, he does not deliver well. I think every uh, like person who works in comedy has their own idea of what is the inherently funny word. With Eddie Izzard, I think it's jam. I think someone asked Gary Larson, who does The Far Side, what his idea of a inherently funny word was, and his was cow. It seems to vary from person to person, but my personal favorite in inherently funny word is murder. <laughs> It's even better with your accent, and I don't know if you're stressing it that way, but I know it's just it's just the the two syllables together, and also what it represents. You could you could replace any noun in a sentence with it, and it becomes funnier. I'm just going down to the shops, and I'm going to get some murder. <laughs> See, yeah, suddenly my word isn't as funny anymore. <laughs> what, what was your word? Platypie. 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 I just thought it sounded funny, but now that I'm trying to replace any word with it, it doesn't work. I'm going to the shops, and I'm going to get half a pound of platypie. Maybe platypus, because that's got puss in there. True. I thought the pie made it funnier. My go-to pie. word's always uh, my go-to word's always crocodile, but that's just because I'm channeling the craze and trying to say that. But, I don't know. Nothing like throwing an obscure movie reference when asked for a random word. Unfortunately, your obscure movie references are often so obscure, I never get them. Uh, great movie about uh, some very, very bad guys in England. So. Now, now we should clarify, for anyone who has not read your bio or whatnot, you're not originally Australian. You, no. know, you come to Australia by way of UK. Yes. So, Not that I so, think yes, that would be mean, insulting either way, but many of our I listeners just, do not know that. Yeah, Australian accent, I can just try to uh, get eye, mate. Good eye, mate. Let's let's put another shrimp on the baby. Which I hear they love when you say that. But the, yeah, because actually that sentence, shrimp on the baby, was used in uh, advert intended for Americans because Australians don't say shrimp. Australians do say, say prawn. Okay. They say prawn like England does. Huh. Shrimp is an American word for it. I was unaware of that. Though it does <laughs> yeah, suddenly make yeah. uh, District 9 make more sense. Yeah, well, the other the other good sign for uh, uh, a tourist in Australia is people who drink Fosters. <laughs> Australian <laughs> for beer, yeah. Don't don't drink Fosters in Australia. It's like wearing a big neon sign saying "I'm from out of town." Yeah, or wearing a Union Jack in the UK. Go to Piccadilly yeah. Circus wearing a Union Jack. Yeah, outside of a football match. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. We we're, we're coming up here on an hour, and I I want to thank you so much for making this the most enjoyable we've ever had. It's been awesome. You're quite welcome. Um, what, what are you currently working on? Anything that you're working on right now that you can tell us? As uh, I could tell you that I've got the script for the Dishonored review open as we speak. Awesome. And I'm trying to get started on the third paragraph. Well, and I, I've, I've personally heard good things about that game, but I've heard good things from disreputable people. People whose opinion yeah. I don't usually trust. <laughs> yeah, I'll save my opinion for the actual video. Awesome. Uh, we would not want don't, to preempt you. Don't want to give anything away. <laughs> we can uh, we can see your reviews up on the escapistmagazine.com, correct? Yes, every Wednesday where you are and every Thursday where I am. Yes, I should mention that at the moment we're currently three people across three different time zones. Um, mm. Squishy is two hours in the past, I'm in the present, and uh, Yahtzee here is in the future. Um, yeah, I'm ten hours into the future. How is Monday looking, by the way? Um, Monday's looking pretty sunny, but then they always do here. 
All right, I, I'll look forward to that tomorrow. Uh, so we have that. We have Mog World still in stores and also available online. Yes, indeed. Uh, again, as you pointed out, the audiobook has just been released on Open Book Audio, and you can find that. Where, where can we find that? You can get that on iTunes or Audible, or just go to the Open Book Audio website to find a list of alternative providers. Excellent. And also Jam. Jam was recently released, and you can find that yep. in stores. That's out. You can get that from Amazon or your local book retailer. Excellent. Well, again, I want to thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to our friends at Open Book Audio for making this little shindig happen. Uh, until next time, this has been Stolen Droids Presents. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>